Hi friend, it's 2020, and let's be real. If you're anything like me, this year is not going the way you planned. It may feel lonely, scary, disappointing, or even overwhelming. But especially in times like these, and no matter what life stage you're currently in, do you find yourself longing for something better, something real? When all else has been stripped away, what matters most? Maybe like me, you wonder about things like restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. In truth, I am on an imperfect journey of pursuing Jesus Christ and what it looks like to find those things in relationship with Him. It's a journey I committed two years ago when I dedicated my life to following Christ, and it's a journey I invite friends to explore with me, even if, and honestly, especially if, you don't know what path you're on. So for those who are skeptical, curious, or just need some encouragement, can I get an amen? (laughs) This podcast is for you. Please come along with me as we journey together towards finding something real. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, Alan. We're so excited to continue our conversation with you. Great. Glad to be back. When we left off, you were talking about suffering and purpose in our finest hours. It was super powerful. Um, And I have to say, I've never heard pain and suffering described the way that you were describing it um, in terms of making, in terms of uh, it mattering um, and and pain not being wasted. Um, So I appreciate your insight. um, But we need help to believe that, right? One of the things I brought up is like, you know, some people might say, but, but how, how do I know this? You know, if, if, you're, if you're a believer, how, how do I know this? And here's how you can know it. Because 2,000 years ago, there was another innocent person who suffered in a way that you and I will never know. And that was Jesus. And when he suffered on the cross, you've got to understand what he went through. Um, when the Romans were done with you, I remember when the movie The Passion first came out, People were like, this is overboard. Mel Gibson's going overboard with this, whatever. And I, I don't know anything about it, whatever. I don't know what kind of person Mel Gibson is or whatever. But what you saw there was not necessarily unhistorical. When you read people like Tacitus, you read people like Josephus, they basically tell you when the Romans were done with you, you were reduced to quivering ribbons of flesh. You are not in good shape. And when they nailed you to the cross, you didn't have a nice little loincloth on. You were nude to add to the public shame. And when they... When they crucified you, they would drive the nail. Um, the, the, the scriptures say your hands, but you have to understand in the Greek word, hands can mean you know all the way up and down your forearm. Where they, where, they, um, where they drove it through was right through that part in your wrist where it would crush the median nerve. And then they would drive the nails through your feet, not only for the pain aspect, but also to give you a way to hoist yourself up because death by crucifixion is essentially death by asphyxiation. You have to hoist your body up because over time, your intercostal muscles start to work against you. And you can't, it's not that you can't breathe in, you can't breathe out. And you have to raise yourself up to breathe out. So if you're not moving, you're dying, you're dead. And each time he's raising himself up to breathe out, he is scraping a skinless back against splintered wood. That's the kind of stuff he's going through. Now, here's the thing. If you and I were there that day and we were watching all of this, We would look at that and we would say, why? Why is God allowing this to happen? 
all the people he loved, the people he healed, all, all the good he shared. Why? Why all these trumped up charges? And we would have gone home thinking there is no way God can bring anything good after, out of that. And yet we would have been looking straight at the greatest thing he's ever done. And when God tells us in Romans 8.28 that he's working all things for those, all things for the good for those who love him, that's just a prime example of what he's talking about. And so, the, so what the crucifixion shows us, even, even, if, even if you don't understand a specific suffering that's going on in your life, I, I, I think we can, we can know why God allows suffering in general. I may not be able to point to a specific set of suffering and be able to tell why is God allowing this. Who knows? Because I'm limited by time and space and insight. I don't see the whole picture, right? I don't see the ripple effect it causes through history. But looking at the crucifixion, even if you don't know the answer, it tells you what the answer can't be. And it can't be because he doesn't love us. It can't be because he doesn't care. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm, yeah. Do you have a follow-up question, Lou? Um, what stood out to you the most about what he just said? Or what are you processing? She said, Lou is such a, um, a thinker. I just, I love that about you. I love the way that you process things. So I can see you've got something that you're thinking about. It was I'm just picturing the whole crucifixion, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's a lot. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I, if, you, if you have another follow-up question, then let me know. I, I used to be agnostic mm -hmm. uh, years ago, and I had a ton of questions. And I think questions are a good thing. Yeah, I, um, I have a question. It's about questions. Yeah. Um, in my personal experience processing faith and religion in different ways is not was not really a thing like there's only one way to do christianity but since i've been here <laughs> things seem different um so what do you think um about again asking questions and why why do you think it's important to um, share with people about all the ways that you can talk about your faith? Okay, to recap. So you're asking, um, what, why is asking questions important? Yeah. And, and do, do I understand, I, I don't want to misrepresent, did I understand you're asking why is it important to share your faith? or? It's more like um, there's not one right way to have a, have faith you know and i feel okay and i guess it's not really a real question um but what do you think about that um is this feeling right like does it make sense or am i wrong so i i suppose that can mean one of several things um so um saying there's not one right way to have faith well maybe first we should start with this what is faith because a lot of people will use the word faith as kind of a synonym for blind wishing. Like I have a warm, fuzzy feeling, and that's why I believe this. Like sometimes Mormons talk about having a burning in the bosom, right? Um, and that's how one can know that Mormonism is true. And I'll say, okay, well, what if I have an experience of the Holy Spirit that, telling, that seems to be telling me Mormonism is false? They can't both be true. They contradict each other. So how do I adjudicate between the two of them? 
And see, a lot of people assume is faith is that faith is believing something without evidence. That's actually not what faith means. Um, when you read about faith in scripture, it's the Greek word pistis. And pistis is more along the lines of what we think of when we use the word trust. It's basically speaking of active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. So faith is not a substitute for the evidence. It's a response to the evidence. And if we believe what it says in Scripture, like it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer for anyone who asks you for the reasons for why you believe, but to also do that with gentleness and respect. Um, and see, and this is the important thing about questions, because notice Jesus himself didn't even discount questions. Um, I'm thinking about two scenarios. On one hand, you can think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, it would, it would seem like he did. They would say, give us a sign, you know, that you are who you say you are. And Jesus says, only an adulterous generation asks for a sign, you know, kind of condemning them for even asking. But then you have John the Baptist. And if you know anything about that story, John the Baptist was thrown in prison uh, by Herod. And he's in prison, and he's about to end up, he's, he's going to end up, as if you know the story, end up being killed. He's going to be beheaded. And he's starting to have doubts, thinking if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the one we've been waiting for that's supposed to save us from our Roman oppressors, what the heck am I doing in prison? So, he's, so John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to go ask Jesus a question. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, are you the one who is to really come? Are you the, basically, are you the long-awaited Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? I mean, ouch, right? Yeah. But Jesus doesn't turn down John. Instead, he gives John just the answer John needs to hear, just the evidence. He says, go tell John what you see and hear. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, Jesus knew exactly what John needed to hear. And then as the disciples are walking down back to John, John is still doubting because his disciples haven't gotten back to him to give him Jesus' answer yet. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells them that no one born of woman has ever been greater than John. I mean, that is a, an incredible compliment. I mean, good grief. Talk about a, an, an awesome thing to say about somebody, and yet John is still doubting. But he's asking questions. And so the question is, well, why does he, why does he come against the, the Pharisees and kind of condemn them, so to speak, for asking a question, but not John? And I think it really comes down to the heart issue. The Pharisees weren't really looking for answers because they wanted to know if Jesus really was who he was, said he was. They were looking to entrap him. They had already hardened their hearts. You know, and even later when Jesus healed people, they tried to say, oh, he's only healing people by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, right? Stuff like that. But I think that's a, that's a good example. Like, you know, God understands our questions. Um. You know, and if we really believe what Scripture says, we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. I, I think it's one of the values of apologetics. The value of apologetics extends far past your immediate evangelistic contact, the person you're talking to. 
no one hears the gospel in a vacuum. They always hear it against the backdrop, against the culture they were born into, right? So if they're born into a culture that sees Christianity on the par with believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, it's going to be really hard for them to be persuaded to come to Christ. That's how it is in Europe now. Um, Europe used to be like flourishing uh, with Christians. Today it's like a, it's a graveyard. Missionaries go and spend years just to get a handful of converts because to them it's like asking to believe in the Easter Bunny. So what apologetics does is it gives answers. It makes Christianity a viable option for thinking men and women. So it also transforms culture. And it's important to, to know the answers to these questions. So especially when you're asking people and they have questions, well, if there's an all good God, why is there evil? Why is there coronavirus? Uh, why, are these th- why are there these things? Why did God let my, my daughter die from leukemia? Right? Um, if we're going to really do this thing justice, we need to know how to answer those questions, not only for them, but also for us. Because a lot of people, they're just living off of their emotions, emotional fuzzy feeling, but emotions are only going to take you so far. Eventually, you're going to need something more substantial. Um, People who go through their lives either too apathetic or indifferent to ask themselves the hard questions about why they believe as they do are going to find themselves utterly defenseless when either A, tragedy hits, or either B, they're just asked questions by a smart skeptic. Hmm. Alan, can I interrupt you and just ask a yes. pointed question, I guess? So I mentioned before we got on here today that I have a heart for uh, some <laughs> much-loved Europeans, including the ones sitting right next to me. And yes. uh, she's so brave <laughs> to be here. And uh, also the ones that might be listening to this later. Um, I sure. have a daughter, and uh, I call her my daughter, in the Netherlands and um, a niece in Germany and anyway, and also another daughter in Taiwan. And so I, what you're saying about the Easter bunny and Santa Claus, um, you know, Jesus being on par with that, I I would say absolutely you're right on. Um, I also know just having gone to the Netherlands uh, last year, I know that there are some amazing churches that are rising up, um, but have heard how hard the soil is there because of what you just were sharing, you know, because um, things are very different culturally. Um, so for the girl who might be listening to this later, who might be listening out of the Netherlands, out of Germany, Italy, um, Taiwan, uh, who is wondering why, why Jesus? Because, uh, you know, all roads lead to heaven kind of thing. And who, who cares? You know, uh, life is whatever. But right now they're being confronted with a worldwide pandemic. There's a lot of fear. So yeah. how would you how would you respond to that person right in front of you who might be asking why Jesus Christ? Because what Lou questioned earlier about questions and what you just said about Jesus seeing the heart behind it, it's so right on. Um, But I, I truly believe, and I I know you do too. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So why, why have you chosen? Why do you believe it, it is Jesus Christ and no one else? Yeah. The reason I believe it's Jesus and no one else. One of the things that convinced me, well, the thing that did convince me, is when I started looking at the evidence, is there good reason to believe the resurrection happened? Because if the resurrection did happen, 
then I have to take seriously what Jesus said about himself. Namely, when he said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Um, that I'm it, right? You know, so one of the things that, it, a, a great resource, um, if anybody is interested in this, would be, I'd probably say a good primer would be Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona's book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. I'd highly recommend that one. Someone who wants to go more in depth, we're talking about an 800-page tome, would be Mike Lacona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. But to just kind of give you the bullet point of it, um, there are several things. I, I like what Habermas calls the minimal fact approach. And it's the idea that I'm not going to try to convince you that the Bible is true, that all the Bible's true. I'm not going to try to convince you that it's with all of it's without error or whatever. Do I believe that? Yes, I do. But I'm only going to use that data that virtually every historical scholar affirms. And I'm not talking just the Christian ones. I'm talking about the atheistic ones. I'm talking about the agnostic ones. I'm talking about the Jewish ones. Um, those things that are so highly evidenced that virtually everyone believes it. Because what I'm going to tell you is I can look at just those things. And by looking at just that data, that's more than enough to give someone some good reasons to believe, some very compelling reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and here's a couple points. And again, I'm giving it to you in a very bullet point fashion um, that virtually every scholar believes. We're talking about 95% and up, right? Um, virtually everyone believes that Jesus was a real person. Now, you, now, don't get me wrong. You'll look online at some of these internet infidel sites <laughs> that try to say, you know, like he wasn't, it's coppering Horus or Mithras or whatever. You might find that on the Bill Maher movie, uh, Religulous, or that movie Zeitgeist. Fact of the matter is, you will, you will not find um, many um, professors teaching at institutions and peer-reviewed journals that will affirm that. And I don't mean just the Christian ones, um, even the atheistic ones. Even Bart Ehrman will tell people, please stop saying that. Um, I'm an atheist, but you make yourself look like a fool when you say Jesus didn't exist. <laughs> um, one of the so, uh, some of the most liberal, and by liberal, I'm not talking politically. I'm talking about theologically liberal people who don't necessarily believe that Jesus was God or any of the rest, but they'll at least firm this much. They'll say, you know, almost it's almost as historically certain as can possibly be. I'm speaking a little bit hyperbolic here, but it's as, as it's as historical as as you can probably get that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. We have that's it's it's multiply attested. It's just it's just a no-brainer. So one, Jesus died by crucifixion. The other thing virtually 95% in every scholar believes, and I'm not appealing to authority here. Um, there's good reasons because they're evidenced from multiple angles, and because they're so evidenced, the vast majority of scholars believe in them. But the second thing is that his disciples sincerely believed that the risen Jesus appeared to them in both individual and group settings. That's taken from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 15, 3 through 5. Now, you might be thinking, okay, you're, trying, you're using the Bible to prove the Bible's true. That's not how historians see it. Um, you have to understand, when historians look at the New Testament, they're not coming to it like some wholly inspired book. You have to realize at one point in time, there was no such book as the New Testament. Um, they're just looking at it as a set of documents coming out of the first century talking about this person named Jesus of Nazareth, and they're investigating these documents to see if any of them or any portions of them 
bear the earmarks of historicity. And it wasn't until later that the church, you know, many years later, the church looked at all those documents and they collected the ones that were the earliest and closest to Jesus and the time of the disciples and put them under one cover called the New Testament. And they discarded the other gospels, ones that came like a hundred years later in the second century that were far away from the time of Jesus and the disciples. There were obvious forgeries. But at any rate, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through, 3 through 5, Paul is passing on a creed that virtually every scholar agrees was actually uh, predates the writing of the New Testament. Paul uses rabbinical language to indicate he's passing on an oral tradition he received from somebody else. He says, for what I received, I pass on to you of first importance. And in that passage, he talks about how Jesus appeared to him, Peter, James, to the disciples, to all the apostles, and to 500 people at one time. Um, so you have Jesus appearing to them in individual and group settings. And then, of course, you have the, other, the third thing that I'm going to mention that virtually 95% over of every scholar believes is that Paul, who was initially a hostile skeptic toward Christianity, converted on the basis of his sincere belief that Jesus appeared to him. Okay? Now, a lot of people might say, well, so what? There's lots of people who, who believe things that are false, uh, because I can point to how the disciples and Paul were all willing to die for this belief. And people will say, well, people do that every day. Muslims do that. The difference is with Muslims or other uh, religious adherents do that is because they've talked to somebody and they've convinced them of the truth of that religion. Here you have people who have declared they saw something. Jesus appeared to them, and that's why. So they were in a position to know, not just believe, to believe, but to know, um, and were willing to die for that belief. Now, believe it or not, those three points are not what's controversial. You might find this odd, but virtually everyone believes that, even the atheists, that Jesus died by crucifixion, that his disciples believed Jesus appeared to them after, after his crucifixion in individual and group settings, and three, Paul converted on the basis of his sincere belief that Jesus appeared to him. Though that's not controversial. What is controversial is the best, best explanation of those facts. And so, just to give you an example, um, the best naturalistic explanation that an atheist might appeal to is that they hallucinated. You know, they'll say, well, you know, um, there's such thing as grief-induced hallucinations, right? Well, if you look at the literature on hallucination, um, the people who are most apt to have them are senior citizens bereaving the loss of a loved one. And about 14% of them, I think I have this right, something like a small percent of them usually feel a sense of the presence person in the room. Something like just 7% of them, if I remember right, will have a hallucination where they see somebody. So you got to ask yourself how likely this is, this explanation works. And when you try to evaluate an explanation, you look at four different things. You look at what's called um, explanatory scope. How much, how much of the data does this hypothesis explain? In this case, we're looking at the hypothesis of an, a hallucination. Explanatory power. How easily does the hypothesis explain the data? Um, in other words, am I forcing it to fit? Like, like, like a puzzle piece that doesn't really go in the puzzle? 
um, or does it fit easily? Three, to what degree is it ad hoc? In other words, does it make any non-evidenced assumptions? And four, is it plausible? Is it in line with what we know? Let me give you a, a, a quick example where this maybe might make a little bit more sense. Have you, you guys ever watched the television show House? I, I think I've watched one or two. Have you watched any of Maybe not the whole thing. The doctor. So House is, yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a doctor and he's a brilliant doctor. So if you have something wrong with you um, that no one else can figure out, House is the guy you want to go to because he's brilliant. The only problem is he's a jerk, right? So you want him, but you don't want him, all right? But let's say we have an episode of House, you know, where they have a case that they don't understand. Let's say this person comes in and they're complaining of, of several things. It's, 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 it's a robust 18-year-old male. And here's the things he's complaining about. Let's say he has a, uh, uh, what is it? Um, he has a fever, all right? He's vomiting and has abdominal pain, all right? And you're trying to figure out what it is, right? So any rate, so House comes to his colleagues and he goes, okay, so uh, what do you guys think? And one of them, maybe it's Foreman, says, well, maybe it's the flu. And he'll say, okay, well, the flu can, the flu can account for some of those symptoms, right? Maybe the, maybe the fever or whatever, but it doesn't really account for the, 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 the vomiting and the abdominal pain. So it doesn't account for all the data. Therefore, your diagnosis lacks explanatory scope. It doesn't account for everything. And then somebody else says, well, okay, but, I mean, rare things do happen, what if it's one of those cases where they have the flu and it's just one of those rare cases where it does cause these other symptoms? And House goes, well, yeah, I, I guess that, that rare things do happen. The only problem is because it's rare, you're really stretching this to make it fit. Therefore, your diagnosis lacks what we might call explanatory power. It's not fitting without ambiguity or strain. You're just kind of trying to make it fit. And it'll say, and also the other thing is, um, it, lacks it, lacks, it lacks plausibility because nowhere in the, the, the medical literature with what we know about the flu do you find all three of these symptoms. Okay. And then someone else says, okay, all right, House, what about this? This guy, let's say that he has the flu, so that explains the fever or whatever. All right. But let's say he also, is, he also likes to go to martial arts and he's fighting and he's sparring and someone hits him in the abdomen and that, and that explains the abdominal pain. And then afterward, he goes out to eat with friends at a restaurant. They eat, and he gets food poisoning, and that explains the vomiting. How about that? And Hal says, well, yeah, sure, that, that, that accounts for everything. Sure, you're right, but the problem is you're just kind of making this stuff up. Um, you're making a lot of non-evidenced assumptions. Therefore, your diagnosis is ad hoc. And then House goes, let me tell you something. What he has is a textbook, a textbook example of appendicitis. It explains the fever, the abdominal pain, and the vomiting um, perfectly without any ambiguity or strain. Therefore, it has explanatory scope and explanatory power because I'm not stretching it to make it fit. Um, also, there's no, I'm not making any non-evidenced assumptions, so it doesn't have a, hit, a hint of being ad hoc. And because it is a textbook example, it enjoys high plausibility. Therefore, prep him and get his appendix taken out. Then Foreman goes, but, but, but what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong in this case? And House goes, Foreman, 
He would be dead before he could call you an idiot for not doing the right thing. Wash your hands, prep them, and get them in, get them in there and, and get it done. And that's how this works when you evaluate certain hypotheses to explain historical data. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it weirdly does. <laughs> yeah, so so like let's let's think about that when it comes to the naturalistic hypothesis of hallucination. Um first of all, a hallucination is a private event. Um it's not something. I mean, it it explains the first point. Okay, Jesus died and someone could be grief-stricken and maybe have the hallucination. So the first point passes fine of Jesus dying from crucifixion. But what about the next two points? the disciples seeing him in both individual and group settings, and even Paul, who was a hostile skeptic, does it explain those two points? Well, like I said, a hallucination is a private event. Right? It's not something that's shared. Um, I, I can't go to sleep at night. If I went to sleep at night and had a dream I was in Hawaii, you would think I was really weird if I woke up and nudged my wife and say, hey, I just had a dream we're in Hawaii. Hurry up and go back to sleep. We can both have a free vacation. <laughs> right? That's not how it works. Right. So the problem is this. And, and, and I remember I remember one time hearing, hearing, hearing Mike Lacona make these points. And, I, and I've kind of um, I've kind of done the same thing. If I'm in a group of people, I'm like, what are the odds that you guys that me in front of you guys? I'm not really here, but you're hallucinating. it. You're hallucinating. I'm here. Just maybe just maybe one or two of you guys. Well, um, you're not grieving, but let's let's just pretend you are grieving. All right. Um, if you're seeing me, that's a seven percent chance you're going to have a hallucination if you're grieving and you're seeing me. What's the odds of two of you guys seeing me? You see the problem. What's the odds of all of you seeing me here? The same hallucination seeing me. And you see the problem. There is no non-anecdotal evidence of group hallucinations anywhere in the psychological literature. Nowhere. Zip. Nada. Now, a skeptic might say, okay, yeah, I'll grant you group hallucinations are rare, but then again, so are bodily resurrections. <laughs> Guess which one I'm going to pick? And I would say, okay, yeah, maybe you're right, but the problem is you just don't have one group hallucination. You got three, because in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through, 3 through 5, there's three group hallucinations accounted for that virtually everyone agrees with. Um, that makes it a little bit hard. So if a group hallucination is rare, now you got something that's rare, rare rare. And not only that, but it doesn't make sense of Paul, because Paul wasn't grieving. Um, if anything, he was boasting about uh, how, how great he was for persecuting the church and all the rest, almost like it was part of his resume before Jesus appeared to him. So you have a real problem here. Now you got to ask yourself, what type of what type of explanation best accounts for those facts? And I contend Jesus bodily raising from the dead accounts for them perfect perfectly. Um, it enjoys explanatory scope. It accounts for all of the data. It accounts for it's explanatory power. I don't have to, uh, you know, strain to make it fit. There's no non-evidenced assumptions. See, because sometimes people will try to say, well, maybe Paul felt guilty. And as he was persecuting him, and that, that's why. The thing is, there's no shred of evidence for that. That hypothesis is ad hoc. If anything, Paul seems to be testifying to the opposite when you read from his letters. And virtually everyone, they may not, some of the most liberal scholars may not agree that all the letters were written by Paul, but they believe that seven of them were, and that's more than enough that I need to make my case. When I, when I look at it, look, look, at, look at all things being evil, uh, equal, 
um, I really have to do some gymnastics to try to give a naturalistic explanation for that. Alan, um, thank you for providing such a thorough and thoughtful response to that question. I, I mean, I've definitely watched. It's interesting that you mentioned Nabil Qureshi. Uh, it's interesting that we talked about that unbelievable podcast. It's also interesting um, that you mentioned that story of John the Baptist. All of these um, these things are things that have been threaded through this podcast up until now. Even Lou, you know, her and I have had conversations, I think, about some of these different things. Yeah, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure we did. Yeah. yeah. And so I love um, your explanation of why Jesus, um, you know, usually when I have that conversation with people, it's a lot based on feelings or experience. I love that you just shared the historical and like best explanation for it and shared it in such a compelling way. And I, I really appreciate that. If somebody wanted to know more, um, maybe they're questioning some of those things. I know you shared um, the case for the resurrection of Jesus as a great resource. What resources or suggestions would you give for the person who is listening right now who knows she believes in God, but she just heard you like give that great explanation and thinks, oh my gosh, I can never talk to people about <laughs> about, <laughs> about Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I could never be that articulate or know that much information. What are some things that... Um, what would you recommend and, and how would you help that person? Well, it, it depends on what they want to, I mean, if they want to know about the resurrection in particular, um, the first books that would come to mind would be the one that was co-authored by Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas. That is a great uh, uh, primer on that subject, the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I would recommend that one. I would also recommend William Lane Craig's little book, the sun rises and the sun being S O N not S U N. Um, that's a great one. Another, another really good book, um, which is a beginner's level apologetics book, which will give you various arguments for God's existence. So they'll give you the argument from contingency, why God's the best explanation for why there's something rather than nothing at all. Um, why God's the best explanation for the uh, origin of the universe the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, uh, the best explanation for objective moral values and duties, um, you know, um, answering the problem of evil and the historical evidence for the resurrection. All of those in one uh, is the book by William Lane Craig called On Guard. I would recommend that one. And um, if you're asking about the problem of evil, a great book uh, that I cannot recommend highly enough is from my professor, Clay Jones, um, um, which is called, which is called, why does God allow evil? And it's not a big book. It's, um, it's a relatively thin book. And I've read a lot of books over the years on the problem of evil, but I really like that one. I mean, really like it. Um, and, uh, it's not full of a bunch of, uh, hard or, or technical concepts or terminology. It's very accessible. In fact, I would say all of these that I'm naming right now are accessible. Someone might find some 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 difficulty even with on guard uh, when you get into some of the arguments might still seem abstract. I, I would still say uh, a lot of that book is accessible, but some of that is abstract. But the other ones are really good. Uh, another great book when it comes to the problem of suffering is C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. That's also a very good one. Yeah, those are the ones that would uh, come straight to mind based upon some of the subject matter we talked about today. Awesome. And um, maybe just one book that you would recommend for somebody who 
uh, just wants to know how to talk to people about faith or how to have oh. these conversations. Uh, just a, a starter book. Um, I know yes. there might be one that you that, recommend. That one I don't even need to think about. This is a book every Christian needs, and I mean this, needs to have on their bookshelf. And that's the book Tactics by Greg Kokel. Um, that's a phenomenal book. Um, that's all I'll say about that. But that, that's a fantastic book. In fact, I, I spend I spend a lot of my time uh, speaking at different different con- conferences on on that type of to- uh, content specifically, even more so than a lot of the stuff I talked about today. Hmm. Um, but I mean, the great thing, everything I talked about today, I, there isn't any of this that I cooked up myself. I mean, these are things that I've learned through the years, and I'm and I'm just I'm just regurgitating it. Well, I um, I think you should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. you're regurgitating uh, pretty well. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah. And I'd love to um, interview you at a later time about uh, cultural things like that movie that you mentioned, Zeitgeist, and different things that throw people way off and uh, how to respond to those things. But I will close with this final question that I always ask guests. Um, the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards finding restoration or redemption, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those four gifts that we can find in Jesus Christ, which of those stand out to you the most right now in your life and why? Well, that's hard because I can make a good case for every one of those. Mm -hmm. I'd probably say restoration at this point. And the reason why is this, especially when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering. And we have to understand this, that if if heaven is really heaven, eternity will dwarf our sufferings to insignificance. A lot of people, when they think of the afterlife, when they think of heaven, they think of it as a compensation for this life. It's not a compensation. It's a restoration in ways that I even can't even fully comprehend. In, In other words, in some way that I can't fully understand, the sufferings and the things that we're going through in this life will serve somehow in the final analysis to make our eternal life even that much better. Um, I don't fully comprehend how that's going to work. I truly don't. Um, I know if you look in, uh, where is it? It's in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. It says, you know, though we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Um, And there was a great part in Clay's book, and he put it this way. He says, you know, if you had a child that you, uh, let's let's say a child grows up and they grow up to be an adult and they live to be 100 years old. But when they were five years old, you had them uh, um, inoculated against polio, which caused them some pain to cry for five minutes. He says, now, if you looked at, you know, what, what is five minutes out of uh, 100 years, that would be 0.000095% of that person's life, right? He says, what would uh, 100 years be in comparison to eternity? Well, it would approach 0%. And imagine that later on, that, that, little, that little girl, that child came to you when they were 75 and said, I can't believe you, you inflicted pain upon me that five minutes when I was five years old, you'd look at that person and think, I am raising an idiot, you know? 
Um, and just think about that in the concept and in, in when it comes to eternity. Um, oftentimes when I maybe teach, teach classes, you know, I'll put a, I'll have a big whiteboard and I'll put a little dot in the middle of it. And I was like, pretend that little dot is a lifetime of maybe 100 years old. And the rest of this board represents eternity. And even this doesn't, isn't a good representation because this board has boundaries. Eternity doesn't. Um, in eternity, you could spend a centillion years doing whatever you want. A centillion is a one followed by 303 zeros. Doing whatever you want and have not lose, lost a moment to do anything else you want to do. And we're talking about an unfallen creation. You think this place is good? With all the sights and the pleasures that we experience here, I mean, even the stuff that we tend to look at as taboo, right? Whether it be, you know, the, the pleasures one has from, I mean, from, from sex or from vacation, from, from, I mean, beer, you name it. That's pales in comparison to what God has us in, in store for. And sometimes I'll point that little dot and I'm like, and many of you are willing, to, you know, I'll point to all the white space, are willing to give all this up for that little dot. Have you lost your mind? You know, because if eternity is eternity, the worst life full of the most immense suffering you can imagine in light of eternity is going to seem nothing more than an inconvenient night in a bad hotel, if that. So the restoration part is huge. Um, oftentimes, and I remember Clay made this point in his book, we often, I don't know why, but when it comes to the problem of evil, a lot of times we look at eternity, at heaven, as almost like the PS of Christian life. So many of us never even talk about it. But I mean, if you look at the, 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 the number one verse that people quote from the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believed in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. This is not a PS. It's the goal. That's one aspect of it. And since we kind of started off talking about the problem of evil and what Jesus has done for us, I'm, I'm, I figure I'll, I'll focus on the restoration aspect. Um, so, yeah. That's my answer. Well, that's a great answer. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Lou? It may sound not that deep, but I I feel like I'll always remember the house um, example. And yeah, it changed some. It changed my perspective a little bit. Well, good. That's awesome. I um, I, I, I like what Greg Kokel says in his book, Tactics. He says, when he has conversations with people, he says, my goal is not to have, at the end of that conversation, for that person to become a Christian and run to the foot of the cross. Do I want that? Of course I do. He says, but my goal is a lot more modest. And I agree with him. What I want, I just want to put a stone in that person's shoe. I want to give them something that will keep poking at them in a good way because they'll keep thinking about it. Because if you're anything like me, I, I didn't become a Christian from zero to 60 seconds, right? Um, it was a while. God worked on me. And I would have conversations with people. And even sometimes they would have conversations, and I, sometimes I even wouldn't concede their points. In my quiet moments of reflection, I would remember some of the points made. And God would work on me. Hmm. Well, Lou, do you um, have a pebble in your shoe? After living here for almost seven months, more than one. But yeah. <laughs> 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 There's awesome. nothing like hosting exchange students to put pebbles in shoes, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and I think that's a wrap. We thank you so much for coming back and, and finishing our conversation today. Lou and I really enjoyed it. Right, Lou? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thank you. Well, again, thank you guys for having me. Love, love doing it. Awesome. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. If you love this series, or even if you're simply finding it moderately entertaining while living the limbo quarantine life, hey, that works too. Hit subscribe and come back next week when I'll probably be talking with another guest about finding something real in times of detours and disappointments. And if you're on Instagram, please come find me. I share Instagram live weekly podcast recaps at Janelle underscore M underscore Wood most every Friday at 1145 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So please join me for questions and fun live awkwardness. (laughs) You can also find some study guides I've created that I hope add joy and encouragement and challenge to you during this time. You can find those on my website at JanelleWood.com. Just look for Clarity 2020 at the top of the page. And now, just so you know, if you only remember one thing about this podcast, I hope that it's this. No matter who you are, Jesus Christ loves you and you have a purpose. May you truly believe it, friend. Until next time.